0: Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, This shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code LINDSAY, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Sadaf Lodi. Dr. Sadaf is a board-certified OBGYN and executive coach for women based in New York. She graduated from the University of Michigan with honors, receiving a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry. She acquired her doctorate in osteopathic medicine at Michigan State University, and completed her residency in gynecology and obstetrics in Michigan. She earned her certification as a life and executive coach from Rutgers University. She's a sex counselor and educator. As a practicing OBGYN in New York for over 20 years, her mission has always been to empower and educate women. Most recently, she opened up a telehealth practice serving patients in New York and Michigan for sexual and menopausal health. She helps women remove mental and physical barriers so that they can find pleasure in their relationship. In today's episode, we will talk about sex positivity and negativity, how to navigate low libido, how to create more intimacy within your relationship, and much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, everyone. Today we have Dr. Sadaf Lodi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I would love to open up today's podcast by having you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to do what you currently do.
1: Well, thank you. So I am a board certified OBGYN. I did medical school up in Michigan and did my residency and kind of was just going about, you know, just doing regular OBGYN stuff and delivering babies and all that. And then I realized that, you know, when patients would come and talk about their sexual health concerns, I really didn't have the all the information that I really needed. And then I thought like, gosh, where do... You know, all the physicians get their information about sex education. And after talking to a lot of my colleagues and other people, and I was working also at an academic hospital, I realized and also helping with their residency in OBGYN, I realized that we don't teach, we don't teach sex education at all, even in medical school. In fact, in medical school, I got maybe like two to three hours, but not much. And that was, the Masters and Johnson work that had been done in the 1960s on the sexual response cycle, and that was done on males. So, I mean, really, there was no information at that time on the female sexual response cycle, and that we didn't get a paper or um, research published on that until 2001 with Rosemary Basson. So, and we learned that, you know, with the Female sexual response cycle, there's a lot more things that go into it than just what the Masters and Johnson model was, which was excitation, plateau, and we had orgasm and resolution. So it's a little bit, it goes more in depth with the female sexual response cycle and it talks about external factors and things like that that we can talk about a little bit later on. But really, what I realized is that I just didn't have the knowledge that I needed to help address my patients' concerns. And so then what I did is that I went ahead and took an online course through the University of Michigan, through their School of Social Work, and it was sexual counseling and education. And it's a year-long program. It was done online, and it was fantastic. And that's a course that a lot of sex therapists will take, and a lot of educators. So my track was the sexual counseling and education. And I find that that is such important information that we don't get as clinicians. And so Not only in medical school, but even in residency, I did four years of OBGYN. And definitely in my residency program, I did not receive any sexual health education. And I know that's true for a lot of programs, even now, because I was teaching at an academic hospital not too long ago and they didn't teach at all about sexual health. So it really, you know, behooves us as physicians and clinicians to understand sexual medicine and sexual health and realize that it's really important for, you know, our patients and their mental health. And then you wonder as patients, like, well, where are these physicians getting their, you know, medical knowledge? And if you look at a lot of the residency programs, most physicians and physicians that are doing residencies do not get any education on sexual health or sexual education. So it's, you know, so that was my passion. And so that's kind of where I went and became an intimacy coach.
0: That's so cool. So, are you still practicing as an OBGYN, like with your typical clinical work there, or are you primarily doing like kind of like you formed this business essentially
1: off to the side? So, both, both. And actually, I was just on call last night and I had been up. I had a delivery and uh, had a lot of patients. So, So, yeah, but I'm doing both. So, That's wonderful. Is it, are you feeling like it's wonderful or are you
0: feeling like it's exhausting?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of both, but you know, I do love it. And OB is really my, women's health is really my passion. And so I'm grateful that I get to be a part of so many women's lives and especially during, you know, the very, important part of a woman's life where she's having a baby and it's really intimate and it's very, you know, women and patients are very vulnerable in that position and at that time of their lives. So I'm really grateful that I get to be a part of that.
0: Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I always I always tell people if I didn't do emergency medicine, the only other thing I would ever think about doing would be focusing on women's health because once I feel like also once you become a mom and you've gone through all of that, it's you just feel deeply connected to it. And especially in the ED, just the patients that I see coming through with just this significant need for, like you said, sexual education and just so many other things when it comes to women's health. It's it's a passion of mine, too. It's all really fascinating, and it's really cool to be able to connect with patients on that intimate level and Have them heard because I know a lot of the time this might be the first time that they're even opening up about, you know, whatever it might be to you. And it's such a vulnerable place. And to be able to connect with them in that way is, is really, really cool. So I totally, I totally get your, you know, your passion for it. It's awesome. So can you talk about the importance of sex positivity and also just give us, you know, maybe some examples of what the opposite of that would be, which is sex negativity? Like, what do we see in our culture that Kind of emulates the sex negativity?
1: Wow, there is so much there. I know, sorry. (laughs) That's a great question. Gosh, well, let's maybe we'll start a little bit with the sex negativity. So, so many women, so many of us, not just women, but so many of us grow up with images of what it means to, you know, have the perfect body to be, you know, sexually, I don't know, I guess sexually responsive all the time, right? To everything just so spontaneous and everything just, you know, what we see in the images of magazine articles and what we see in the media and then, you know, Images of women with the perfect body and there's so much attached to that, right? And then bring into that perhaps the way that we were raised, you know, perhaps we grew up in a culture that never talked about sex. Maybe there was shame and maybe there was embarrassment. Maybe there was guilt. Maybe there was, you know, people that saw it as taboo. And you know, it's funny, I think, to be honest, because I think that Although the West is very, you know, they like to think that they're very sex positive. I would say the latter. I think that there's a lot of taboo associated with sex. I think a lot of my physician friends are very uncomfortable discussing sex and sexual health with their patients. And also just even having a discussion, they feel very uncomfortable. And I think it's because, you know, it kind of goes back to not really being educated about sexual health. And I think that that is in part. What leads to a lot of sex negativity. And of course, you cannot forget trauma and abuse that happens also to people and to children when they, you know, are young. And so that when they grow up, they associate a lot of times that trauma with their first experience. And so you know, and then of course, rape. And so there's so much there, right, that can lead to sex negativity in a person and in their relationship. What I mean, when I say sex positivity is really just having like a healthy, non judgmental and respectful attitude toward, you know, all aspects of sexuality, and really, the acceptance that sex is a natural part of life. And it that's important because it reduces the stigma and shame. If we're able to do that, then patients are able to come to us and ask us questions about their sexuality, ask us about sexually transmitted infections that they may have gotten, right? If they find that they go to a provider and that provider themselves is very uncomfortable discussing the topic of sex and sexual health, then they won't go to that provider anymore. They won't even ask them about questions because they'll notice that that provider is very uncomfortable and may not even have the answers to their questions, right? right? So that's why I think it's so important to, you know, work toward a sex positivity. Also, we know that it promotes sexual health, it encourages, you know, open and honest discussions about sexual health, better education, awareness of sexually transmitted infections, prevention of intimate partner violence, which is huge. You know, I know you and I were talking a little bit offline about consent. And that is so important, and something that doesn't get discussed. And you know, I could get on my soapbox. But we, you know, we know that here in the United States, and I have actually given a, a lecture on this, but here in the US, the, each district school education system gets money for sexual education. Now, whether or not They teach it or how they teach it or whether or not it's even scientifically accurate is really up to them. It's up to the school district and how they want to teach it. So there's no like standard. You know how we always talk about in medicine, we always talk about standard of care, right? There's no standard of care when it comes to teaching sexual health. And so that's why so many different people will have different perceptions about sexual health. They'll have different education about sexual health because if the only information they're getting is what they get in school, and they can't discuss that topic with their parents, and they can't discuss it with their family or their friends, then they will just grow up with whatever it is that they learned, right? And whatever they were taught, let's say, in uh, religious school, right? If, uh, if you're religious, then you know whatever you learn, that's what you abide by. Yeah. And so there's so much there. And I think it's really, really important to go and learn at your schools, right? If uh, we are moms, and this is a mom podcast, it's really important for us to learn what our kids are learning about sexual health and sexual education in our schools, so that we can advocate for better education for our children. I know in some places in the US, you know, contraception is not taught We're their children are taught about abstinence, they're taught about, you know, just avoiding sex altogether. And you and I know working in the medical field that that doesn't work. <laughs> you, know, you know i've had i've had patients that i've delivered that were 13 years old you know and it's really sad because they are kids themselves you know i came in to a patient's room one time and she was watching cartoons and i felt really sad because i felt like wow you know she has no idea how hard life is going to be now having trying to raise this child and she herself is still a child you know so i think that regardless of how you feel about you know Sexual education its really important for our children and for really everyone, even adults, to get proper sex education so that we can be our own advocates and we can be advocates for our kids so that they know and understand sexual health, sexual intimacy, and know that they have a voice and know what the proper, you know, scientifically backed, research-based evidence is regarding sexual health.
0: I so, I feel like we could have our own podcast just about this, right? About sexual education. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's just so incredibly naive to to think that way where we say, "Oh, you know, my child will never be that child, tri- you know, that child. They're not going to do that." I I and whenever you make rules, think about if somebody made a rule for you right now. <laughs> you're not allowed to go eat those chocolate chips today. And I'd be like, okay, yes, I am. It's kind of human nature. You know, if somebody tells you not to do something, you kind of want to do it. (laughs) And yeah, and I just, that's honestly probably one of my top three parenting, I don't even know what you would call them, responsibilities that I take on. And number one is teaching my girls and my boy, just all about consent, all about, their bodies, all about puberty, all about when I grew up, it just the culture was not the culture it is today. I do think that we've made progress as far as that goes. I do think we are more comfortable talking about those hard things. I know growing up, it wasn't something that was often talked about in my own home, but we talk about, I mean, I have books with vaginas and penises everywhere. (laughs) It's like, you know, as long as they're age appropriate for the kids and we go over them frequently and we, you know, try to tell them exactly what they're going to go through as, you know, they're approaching that age. I don't want things to happen to them that they're not aware of and then talk about it after the fact, right? Like I just want them to be prepared and you have no idea what other kids are going to tell them or ask them at school. And I want my child to have the right information and say, actually, that's not correct. I know that's not correct. I already learned about that. You know, to have those tools before you need them is just so important. And learning about what your school's curriculum is doing is really important because then you can kind of fill in the gaps of what you think is important for them to know if they don't already have it. And yeah, it's, it's crazy to me. I mean, there are some schools that have no curriculum at all. Like you said, like there's just nothing in place and there's no standard. So I think we're so far off from even having a standard because unfortunately, yeah, there are so many people that either don't want it or want only certain things discussed. And I just don't think it would ever go over well. And that's probably why there's no standard (laughs) because so many people have an opinion about it. And It would be very hard to settle on one thing for everyone. But yeah, I mean, I am just all for it. I would, I mean, I'd love to be that person that like put together the course and the teachers and all of that. And I think it would be so incredibly empowering for the kids as well. And it would just help so much to prevent STIs, to prevent unwanted pregnancy, to prevent all of these things that people are concerned about. If they have the knowledge they're able to avoid those things. And yeah. So anyway, that's my.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, I would even say what you mentioned about, you know, when you tell somebody and your example of, you know, they can't have that cookie, really their mind goes to that cookie all the time. Absolutely. What's so important about that cookie? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why can't I have it? What's so, why maybe it must taste really good. That's right. Right. That's probably what it (laughs) is. Right. So (laughs) they really, it's going to just do the opposite of what you tell them not to do. So I really important. And also, you know, when you talked about the female anatomy, I would just say that, yeah, absolutely. It's so important to teach, you know, our kids the proper terms and, you know, vulvas uh, talking about the external genitalia and, you know, penises so that when they get older and, you know, God forbid, if they ever have an encounter where somebody touches them inappropriately, they're not using like a euphemism like cookie, like, oh, you know, the person touched my cookie. And then you're like, well, that was okay. That was the big deal. They touch your cookie. Right. And if they don't, have the words or the language for that terminology they're not going to be able to tell you exactly you know what is happening and why they're so upset so i think it's really important to be teaching children the proper terminology yeah, absolutely yeah and
0: i mean it's 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 really surprising what you know teenagers know and don't know i mean i remember i was having a conversation with a midwife that lives down in the south and she was telling me this story about how one of her patients was young, I want to say, fourteen, maybe fifteen. And she had gotten pregnant because she didn't understand that, you know, the penetration of a penis into her vagina was going to get her pregnant. She was told that that would only happen if she used it in her rectum, right? I know but but this is what I'm saying, right? Like, who knows where she heard that from? But because there's no sexual education, it's like, and, and whoever she told probably thought the same thing. You know, who knows, right? And it's just, it's mind boggling to me that we're letting, you know, these, you know, preteens, teens, you know, young adults walk around with information that's, that can be so harmful for them, right? Like, I mean, knowledge is power always. This podcast is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I gave AG1 a try because I was striving for better gut health and hoping that along with my current exercise routine, it would give me a good energy boost. I drink AG1 in the morning after my workout with added protein. It's a great way to start the day and gives my body what it needs for fuel. As a mom, I'm always looking for quick and easy ways to take care of myself. And this takes little effort. Overall, I've felt more mental clarity, increased energy levels and positive differences in my gut health. AG1 is a quick and easy way to get science driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients on a daily basis. As you know, taking care of you first is the best way to take care of your kids. And AG1 is one of the ways you can take care of yourself every day. AG1 has a slight tropical flavor and tastes great if you want to add it into your smoothies. For me, I think it's just fine mixed with ice cold water and vanilla protein. AG1 has the NSF Certification. This certification was created for professional athletes and is the gold standard for clean ingredient nutrition. The certification process is exhaustive and involves testing and verification of each ingredient in every finished batch of AG1. If you want to check out the full ingredient list, you can head over to their website for more details. Perhaps my favorite part about AG1 is how they evolve with science. They cross-reference decades of established research with new clinical studies and biotechnology to bring you the best formulation possible. They have already made 52 iterations of AG1 to this day and will always strive to be better. For all the moms out there, you know how busy life can be. So if you're looking for self-care that's quick and easy, try AG1 and get free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. That's drinkag1.com slash Lindsay. Check it out. All right. So I want to know what is the most common reason that someone usually reaches out to you for help?
1: Yeah. So as I don't even know if I mentioned. So I am not only an OBGYN, but I'm an intimacy coach. So I'm a sex coach. And one of the most common reasons that people reach out to me is decreased libido, decreased arousal. A lot of women that are a little bit, you know, in their mid thirties and older are the ones that typically tend to reach out and they want to really Reignite the spark in their marriage or they're dealing with like a sexless marriage or they're dealing with not being able to communicate their wants and desires with their partners, right? And so they're trying to figure out how best to navigate that. A lot of times these women may have been raised in sex negative environments and so that they never had anyone to talk to. And there's a lot of shame and guilt, right? So if you are experiencing a sexless marriage, which is defined as less than 10 sexual encounters in a year, there's a lot of guilt and shame and perhaps the woman feels like it's something she did. And, you know, she, a lot of times women will internalize all of those things that they're experiencing. They think that there's something wrong with them, that they're broken. And so that, you know, they're not really sure what to do. And like I said, it's, there's just a lot of shame uh, associated with that. And so oftentimes they'll come to me for that. Other times I've had clients come that are experiencing just mismatched libido. So, you know, one partner wants it more than the other and they're trying to navigate that and they're trying to, and oftentimes I will say not always, because sometimes it's the woman that has a higher libido, but more often than not, it tends to be the husband that has a higher libido and, you know, she wants to know why she has decreased libido and doesn't really understand. And what we learn from research and papers that have been published on decreased libido And low desire is that there are so there are so many things that go into it, right? So the approach that I take is a biopsychosocial model, which really goes into in depth into a patient's uh, life. So the bio part of it is any biological component that may be interfering with her desire, for example. You know, if she's had a difficult delivery and she had some lacerations or tears or something like that, and now she's experiencing pain every time she has sex, something anatomical that could be happening, perhaps she has vaginismus. And so for your listeners that don't know what that is, that's basically involuntary contraction of the muscles that surround the vagina in anticipation of fear due to penetration. So, you know, a pay a person, and it's so common. So, a woman that even if she never had it before, right, she may develop it later on in life. Again, maybe it's due to trauma. Maybe it's due to something that she's experienced. And now she has this fear with penetration. And so, a lot of times I'll talk to women about vaginismus in conjunction with them also seeing a pelvic floor therapist or a physiatrist that can help deal with the anatomical portion of what's happening with their muscles in their external genitalia, the vulva. And I'll work with a psychological component of it using cognitive behavioral therapy and looking into their thoughts and feelings surrounding sex and what's happening at the time that they're fearing the penetration. So that's often a reason why women reach out as well. And sometimes what I find is that women are just looking for permission. They're looking for permission to Explore sex. They're looking for permission to learn about it, to not feel like it's dirty, wrong, or shameful, but just to somebody to tell them that it's okay to learn about their own bodies. Oftentimes I'll have women that come to me and don't understand their body, don't understand the female anatomy. And so then being an obstetrician gynecologist, you know, I also go through that with them, understanding that, you know, clitoris is the only organ in a human that is solely for the purpose of pleasure. There's no other organ in either one of the genders that is solely for the purpose of pleasure. And so really it's understanding all of those things. And it reminds me of an author that I love. I don't know if you, um, she's very, Emily Nagoski. Have you no. heard of her? So she's written a book called Come As You Are. Oh, I did she, hear about this. Yeah. So she's a fantastic author. And so one of the things that I love that she says, and I quote it all the time is to have, to want sex is to have sex worth wanting. So for women that are de- have experienced uh, decreased libido, you know you have to ask them. Well, are you experiencing pleasure in the encounter? Right. Oftentimes, women are saying are seeing sex as a chore, and so when anything becomes a chore, you're not going to want to do it. Right. Like if I'm told mm-hmm. I have to do the dishes, the laundry, whatever, I'm not going to want to do it. So if I'm thinking that I'm having sex because it's pleasing my partner, but I'm not getting anything out of that interaction, I'm not going to want it. So it's really important to go through and think about the causes of why you might be experiencing decreased libido. So we talked a little bit about the biological aspect of it. So anything anatomical that may be causing pain, women may be experiencing vaginal dryness, pain with penetration, pain with deep penetration, any of those things. And then you can have the psychological aspect of it. So you know, are women experiencing anxiety, depression, any of those things can, of course, affect libido. And then the social aspect of it, you know, are there a single mom trying to make ends meet? Are they working 24 seven, of course, they're gonna be too exhausted to want any type of in a minute intimate interaction you know are they did they grow up in a culture of sex negativity and so now every time they're in that position of being intimate with somebody you know all those shameful thoughts negative thoughts come to their head and they're just not you know they just cannot get into the mood are they on medications that are preventing them from having an orgasm or decreasing their libido we know that antidepressants often will affect libido medications for blood pressure can affect libido so all of those things diabetic medications you know are they a long-standing diabetic where their partner now cannot experience an erection. And, you know, they have uncontrolled diabetes, so they've lost sensation, you know, so all of those things come into play into why somebody may be experiencing decreased libido. So anytime somebody comes to me and says, well, I have decreased libido, you know, that's like, a very involved type of analysis. It's not something where, you know, and there are medications. So before there were no medications for women and now there are two medications for women. One is a pill that you take at night, every night It's called Addy. And the other medication is an auto-injector called Vilesi, and both of those are to increase libido, and there's been some research on testosterone. But with testosterone, you have to really be careful because the dose that women get should only be a tenth of the dose that men get. And so you really want somebody to follow you if you are going to take or, you know, use like a testosterone cream or something like that, because you don't want to end up with clitoromegaly or any of the side effects like, you know, start to have male pattern baldness, acne, voice deepening, or any of those things, right? And so that's why I'm not an advocate for testosterone pellets. Although some women say, you know, it really helps their libido. I would say that I would actually advise people against pellets just because they're not FDA approved and we don't know what's the dosage of the testosterone that you're getting. And you know, with pellets, once they're in, they're in. So you can't take them out. You know, they dissolve and things like that. So anyways, you're not, unless you have somebody that's really monitoring your levels, I would not go with pellets. I would really go with a sexual health physician that really knows and understands what they're doing and somebody that can monitor you. So yeah, <laughs> those are some of the reasons why people. <laughs>
0: After all that, I love that. So I love that you, you know, mentioned that this, you know, over 30 range of women who are, you know, typically reporting low libido. And I can, I can see that because, you know, in this range of postpartumhood and just You almost feel like you're in a new body compared to what you were prior to children. And so much changes physically, mentally, all of those things. And there's just so much that goes into it, right? And there was something specific I wanted to mention while you were... Oh, so I wanted to ask you specifically about this because I've had so many people kind of mention this often on Friends or either on podcasts I've had in the past. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on it. So... And I and I don't know where this originated. I'm sure it was someone who came up with this originally. So I think it's called like 30 days of intimacy or something along those lines where you kind of challenge you and your partner to doing this every single day. You have to do something intimate, sexually specifically, and how incredible it is for someone's relationship. What are your thoughts on that? Is that just like crazy cuckoo to think about? Or does it actually, do you think it actually, there's something to it?
1: No, I love that idea. I think that, you know, for me, anything, so there's so many different types of intimacy. There's physical intimacy, there's emotional intimacy, there's experiential intimacy, there's intellectual intimacy. So, you know, really intimacy is how you connect with somebody. It's allowing yourself to be vulnerable. It's allowing yourself to experience things with that one person or, you know, your partner, whoever, and really sharing your thoughts, your feelings, and just being vulnerable. And I think that it's really important to allow yourself to do that because really, you know, everyone gets bored with monotony, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of times when people experience sexless marriages, right? Perhaps they're so busy in their own lives, perhaps they're experiencing monotony. And they just don't even, you know, they see this, they start seeing the other person as just like a roommate and not even a sexual partner anymore. And I think that, you know, that's a, a great idea in creating more intimacy because novelty and, you know, experiencing something different is really what creates more passion, I would say, in a relationship and more excitement, right? I mean, really, why do we enjoy attention from somebody new, right? Somebody that, you know, when you're first dating your partner or whoever you know, why is that so exciting? Well, because it's new, it's different. You're learning about each other. You know, you're so curious. You want to know everything. You want to be with them all the time. And it's just, everything just seems so spontaneous, right? But as we get into these long-term relationships, it becomes harder to elicit that because we get so used to that person all the time. And so you really have to make an effort to have that special time together to do something exciting. They say, you know, you should do something like a new activity together, whether it's like, ballroom dancing or, you know, something that's very different for the two of you so that you experience that exhilaration. And that not only binds you together as a couple, but creates that emotional intimacy and that experiential intimacy that people often seek with somebody new. And that's why that's so important. So absolutely, I think that those ideas of 30 days of intimacy are fantastic because then you're able to, you know, you really, it's about giving yourself permission, honestly. I mean, I think it all, boils down to that when we give ourselves ex- a permission to experience pleasure when we give ourselves permission to experience new things then that really allows us in having a more satisfying experience regardless of whatever that experience mm-hmm. is I so I had talked
0: about these once before but they have these like little conversation cards for just about everything these days but they have specifically intimacy ones which I found to be really cool especially for those that are like, I don't know where to start with this. This is like an uncomfortable place for me to be. They're really, really cool. And I think there's there's probably a bunch of different brands that make them now, but you can choose to do one a day or even one a week if it seems too daunting to start that much in the beginning. But they're really cool questions and they don't just involve things that might be about sex. They're about everything. Um, and creating that emotional connection is I think it's really key, especially for women. And those cards are just a really cool way to do it
1: if you're kind of like, I don't really know where to start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, in Rosemary Basson's female sexual response cycle, she mentions emotional intimacy, and that's something that women often seek, right? And Oftentimes more than men. I mean not saying that men don't like it, of course they do, but you know, I think for women they often want that emotional intimacy. And that emotional intimacy is really what binds the couple. And when they're able to share that, you know, allows them to be vulnerable with each other. And it can only foster and strengthen that physical intimacy. Yes, yes exactly. I can't remember what book I was reading. Well, Years and years
0: ago, I read The Female Brain, which was fascinating. I don't know if you had heard of that one, but it's an old book. And I just loved learning, you know, specifically about the differences between how a male brain versus a female brain really presents. And it just helped me understand, you know, specifically my husband better. And there was another book that I had read that, you know, talked about that. Intimacy connection. This is generally, but this is not everyone, but generally males really love to have that physical interaction where to connect emotionally. Whereas women kind of have to flip flop with that emotional connection before they can get intimate, you know, on a sexual type of it's just so interesting to me because if you look at some relationships, you're like, Oh, I get that now because it's, you know, if you don't have that, then there's no you know, intimacy at all. And both people are upset and, you know, their relationship is just not going to work. Everybody is different. I have friends that are, you know, the opposite in their relationship. So it's just, it's so, it's so interesting, but that's why it's so important to also, you know, have that open conversation with your partner, because you have no idea what their wants and needs are until you talk about it. And then you're better able to connect with them um, if they need certain
1: things. So Absolutely. So there's actually a survey, the female sexual satisfaction survey, and they found key factors in relationships that really, you know, decided whether or not those women were sexually satisfied. And what they noted was that the number one factor in female sexual satisfaction was communication. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So being able to be open and honest with your partner and discussing your wants and desires is so key. And it seems so simple but, uh, you know, I'd love to, you know, the listeners on this podcast to go and think about the last time they had a conversation, an open conversation about their sexual, physical intimacy with their partner, right? What they want, what their desires are. And I'd love for them to ask their friends and see who's really having those discussions. And I will tell you, not very many Oh, people.
0: absolutely. You're so right. And, you know, it, I think one of the most common things is, oh, we're just too busy. We can't, like, when are we going to do that? you know, and, and, you know, the argument is, well, if you can't make time for that, then your relationship is going to suffer for it, especially long-term. But yeah. And it doesn't have to be where you like schedule out a date and get a sitter and go out and make it this like long drawn out thing. I mean, you can just reserve 20 minutes a day at night and, or a week, start off small, but yeah, connection is just so, so important. So I wanted to ask you specifically for those that are For the women that you've seen that are postpartum, Mm. what seems to be the commonality or is there with what they might be struggling with specifically?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that women, so there's so many things, right? So women that are postpartum, first and foremost, it's what's going on with their body right? So their body has changed. There's so many things has changed, you know, perhaps they were really physically fit. And during the pregnancy, they gained a lot of weight, right? So they may be feeling a sense of loss of their body, and how much work they put into, you know, having this child, and now their whole body looks different, and perhaps their body image. So one of the biggest things that affects women, in terms of libido is body image. So that's the first thing. Second thing could be painful sex. Perhaps they had, like we talked about earlier, perhaps they had a difficult delivery. Perhaps they had a fourth degree tear. Perhaps they had like some crazy tear in their vulva region that now has caused pain every time they have sex, right? And so now they are experiencing vaginismus, which they never had before, but all of a sudden now they are because they're having so much pelvic pain. Yeah. Our moods fluctuate postpartum. So there may be days where we feel overwhelmed, right? Especially, I know with my first child, I was so overwhelmed. I was like, wow, this is really rocking my ball. <laughs> like, I have no idea. Like, you think like, oh, yeah, I am babysat for my nieces and nephews. I'm cool. I know how to do this. No, you don't. there is no post call as my friend and I would say, you know, and in OB, we're up all night, we're delivering babies, whatever. And at least hopefully the next day you're off and you can rest. Well, in motherhood, there's no such thing. You never rest, right? There's no post call. Nobody's going to come and take that baby for you unless of course you have help, which is fantastic, but not everyone has that luxury. So yes. there's, you know, that overwhelm with being tired all the time. There's the, Oftentimes, there's been research that's been talked about with this as well, is the uneven distribution of household chores, right? That will affect your libido. If you are always, you know, and it's funny because women are seen as the nurturers. So they are, of course, automatically associated with taking care of the children, right? So they carry the heavy burden of not only taking care of the children, but of course, then the household as well. So then the dishes and the laundry and all of that stuff. So if you're, you know, able and fortunate enough to get help to help you with those things, that's great. But if you're not, then you've got all that on your plate. And then add to that, you're working right? So now you're working, you're going to school and you have this kid. So there are so many things, right? So I would tell women that are struggling with, let's say, libido is to not punish yourself, not to think that there's anything wrong with you, not to say like, wow, you know, I used to have so much energy and things used to be so spontaneous. And we were having this crazy, amazing, mind-blowing, you know, sex and all this stuff. And now we have nothing. Um, And so not to be so hard on yourself, because really, it's not your fault. You are really just exhausted. I think that, you know, taking time out for yourself, showing yourself compassion and understanding and kindness, I think goes a long way. Uh, You know, understanding the pace of grace, which somebody once taught me, I think is really important. And just being mindful, you know, so many studies have shown that I know that, you know, we talk about mindfulness, and that's really a buzzword nowadays. But really, what's important was that with that is that just being present, In what you are doing right at that moment without judgment and showing yourself compassion is so, so important. So for any mom out there that's struggling, I would say, you know, to just be kind to yourself and just go slow. And if you need to help, if you need somebody to talk to, reach out to friends or if you're struggling with depression, so many women struggle in silence. You know, we've recently heard of some physicians who have committed suicide postpartum. You know, there was a recent case of a, a woman that can and she actually I didn't I didn't know her, but recently here in New York committed suicide and also killed her four month old baby. So it was like a homicide suicide, which is really, really sad. So I think that if you're struggling with, you know, anxiety or depression, which is so, so common, actually one of the biggest risk risk factors of pregnancy is maternal suicide. I bet you didn't know that. That's from the American College of OBGYNs. So really, it is so, so important that if you're struggling with any of that, that you seek help. You seek help with a therapist, a psychiatrist, your OBGYN, somebody that can help you. You know. Also, we don't talk about postpartum psychosis. So there's so many things that can happen postpartum. So I think that if you are struggling with anything, the most important thing is to reach out and get help. Yes. And- I had spoke with somebody about
0: this before and I I just, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree as somebody in OB, I just, I feel like we've so much work to do when it comes to evaluating women postpartum and there's just not enough right now. And the mental health aspects of it are just so huge and they're... And, and not that it should just be up to, you know, the OBGYN to assess for this, but I just wish there were, there was something else that we could add, you know, to the postpartum, you know, checkups where, you know, it was, covered by insurance for you to speak with a mental health therapist, even though you thought you had nothing to talk about. You just go and you can just make one appointment. It's covered by insurance and you can talk about whatever you want. But you know, if something kind of spills out and it becomes this thing, well, you have somebody, you have this connection and you can continue to follow up with them. But I just feel like, yeah, it's just so taboo to reach out to somebody, right? People don't want to, they think there's this stigma related to it. And I just wish it was more well accepted overall. I think those of us in the health field were, you know, we'll scream from the rooftops that we're going to see a therapist, but not everyone will. And I I just wish there was kind of something more out there for those, you know, postpartum moms that are, that are really struggling because it's, it's tough. And I just don't feel like there's enough people
1: on their team once they've actually had the baby, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. No, you know, I know that, you know, definitely as OBGYNs, we do the Edenberg scale and we do the PHQ-9, which are both screening tools for depression, but, you know, how many OBGYNs actually have time to discuss that, right? So if we see that the numbers are elevated oftentimes what I'll do is I'll refer them to a therapist or a psychiatrist, but still, you know, it's, I think it just has to do with the way medicine is unfortunately right now where you're struggling to see patients every 15 minutes and you just don't have time to even talk about anything, which is really unfortunate.
0: No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I think OBGYN as a field right now is, is becoming more and more difficult to probably even get people to want to go into it. I have no idea what the recent numbers were, but I mean, same has been for emergency medicine where after COVID, I mean, Yale hardly met their numbers this year. I mean, it's it's been it's been crazy trying to get people that that will actually want to go into these fields for for many different reasons, many of which we we know about and it's just it's really really hard and and that just means less time given to all of us for what we need for care and it's tough and it's a lot of pressure and you know anxiety for those that are trying to treat us because we want to do more we can't and there's no worse feeling i feel like <laughs> when it comes to like knowing that you you know want to provide the care for somebody and you simply cannot because of time constraints and and other things. But yeah. Okay. So let's kind of wrap things up. And let me ask you if there's anything
1: that you want to mention that we didn't go over yet today. Yeah. So I think that, you know, one last thing that I would just say to is listening to this podcast is that remember to always ask for help, always reach out regardless of whether or not you think, you know, there's nothing wrong. If, if you're experiencing depression or you have postpartum blues, you know, definitely reach out if you're having any issues with your sexual health and, you know, issues come up, right? I think, I don't think there's anyone in the world that doesn't have some type of sexual health concerns. So I think it's really important for us to normalize that conversation and take away that taboo, because like you said, mental health and both sexual health, I think um, are two fields that are, you know, definitely taboo that people don't talk about and really, really important for us to talk about so that we can help resolve and uh, important for people to reach out when they can. And uh, there's lots of resources. If anyone wants, they can definitely go on my website as well, drsouliff.com. And uh, there's resources on that page as well. So, perfect. Thank you.
0: And I have two questions for you that are unrelated to the content today. So the first question is, and I know you just gave us some advice, but you're gonna have to come up with something different. (laughs) If you could give us one piece of advice for moms, what would it be?
1: I think that communication I think communication is so important in a relationship. I think that that is what leads to breakdown of a relationship is when we don't communicate with our partners anymore, with our spouses. I think when we start stonewalling and we just don't discuss what's bothering us, I think it just really leads to the downfall of that relationship. So what I would ask anyone to do who is in a committed relationship or even any relation, doesn't matter committed or not committed, is just to be open and honest about your feelings and talk to your partner about what it is that you want, your desires, and really try to be as open as you can. Because I think the more vulnerable that you are with your partner, the more happy and open I feel that your relationship will be. And you'll feel more connected and you'll have that emotional intimacy that eventually can lead to physical intimacy. But really having that emotional connection, I think is so important and it happens through communication. Yes, it it absolutely does. I totally agree. All right. So the last question is
0: if you could make one meal for your entire family that everybody would eat, that is relatively quick and easy. What would it be? (laughs)
1: Lasagna. They love lasagna. Love it. Is there a specific way you typically make it? I do the the beef lasagna, so the the beef ground meat and nothing crazy. I mean just, you know, the lasagna strips and the ricotta and the put egg in the ricotta and yeah, but I, you know, and the mozzarella and stuff and the Parmesan, but, but yeah, they all love that. And actually my Turkey meatloaf, it's, it's the glazed Turkey meatloaf. It doesn't take that long, but everyone just, everyone really likes it. So yeah, those two. I love that you mentioned
0: that. I, I was making, I, I love making it in the fall and winter, but it's not really something I make in the spring or summer. I don't know why I just feel like it's, you know, like a meatloaf and mashed potatoes is just such a fall winter thing to do. But yeah, you just reminded me that that's a really good option for a recipe coming up. I'm going to write it down. Meal planning is, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know because you have three kids too, but it's like, I'm like, why is it that you all just won't eat the same thing? And I don't make (laughs) multiple meals. I only make one. And if they don't want it, they don't want it. That's fine with me. But I put like a, you know, bowl of vegetables on the table. If they don't want what's for dinner, they can, you know, munch on those. That's fine. But it's so hard, yeah, <laughs> you know, definitely cooking definitely and, definitely and the is. meals. It's, it's a rough go, but
1: yeah. <laughs> right, <together>. yeah
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, say thank you so much. I, I appreciate all of your time that you took out to come on here today and to teach us about something that's so, so important that we probably don't think about enough and don't get enough, give enough attention to.
1: So thank you, Dr. Sadiq for coming on today and chatting with us. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate your time. And for all the listeners out there, you know, go ahead and talk to your providers about sexual health. It's really important. Yes, absolutely.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old.